Hello, and welcome to The Learner Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. My guest today is Brett Wigdortz, co-founder and CEO of Tiny, a venture capital-backed social enterprise aimed at fixing the very broken childcare market. Tiny supports in-home childcare workers, or childminders as they're known here in England, by providing a tech platform in a community. The tech platform offers all the back office support that many childcare workers hate, payroll taxes, contracts, communication with families, but also offers things like activities to do every day based on the early years framework and even professional development. Brett and I cover a lot of ground in this episode. We look at why the childcare market is so messed up and pick apart why some workers in this space make less than minimum wage to do the very important work of caring for our youngest humans. We also look at the exodus from the profession. So the state of the child money market is really bad. Um, so the numbers have been shrinking. There were about 100,000 child minders 20 years ago. There were about 50,000 right before maybe 2017 or so, I think. And now there's about 29,000 post-COVID. So it's dropped, I know, by about 20%. We talk about the neuroscience of early years and why government policies fail so miserably to support families. We examine the two big problems Tiny is trying to fix. Not enough pay, which means not enough child care workers stay in the industry and the loneliness that can come from being alone with young children all day long. We tackle a question that I've asked for more than five years, a question that really pisses me off. Why does this incredibly important and vulnerable period of a child's life and a family's existence get such short shrift? Brett Wigdortz, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So what problem is Tiny trying to solve for? It's trying to solve for a few problems. I mean, the big problem is that there's a real shortage of great early years practitioners in England and in many countries around the world. And the reason there's a shortage of great practitioners is because many of them struggle to make ends meet, to earn a living professional salary as a practitioner, and to have really good working conditions. So we're trying to help more people open small nurseries in their homes, make a professional salary, and have the working conditions they need to be really successful early years practitioners. Let's dig into that a little bit. How broken is childcare? do you think, in this country? Let's focus on England first. Childcare is incredibly broken in England. I think it's broken in many countries around the world, but in England, it is a real burning platform. There's a massive shortage of good practitioners. It's a supply-constrained market. As a result, many parents can't go back to work. Uh, unfortunately, it's usually the mom who doesn't go back to work, so there's huge productivity problems. On the other hand, there's also many children out there who don't get a good earlier's experience, so they start school really behind other children, usually wealthier children, and that you know feeds into the whole education gap that exists in this country. And finally, uh, a real problem is just that practitioners aren't earning a professional salary for the most part. So there's a real problem, you know, getting people who really like working with kids to do it in a way that they can actually do it as a profession. And give us a little context. You've mentioned this a few times now that early years providers are not getting paid well. How poorly are they paid? So in a nursery, on average, they're getting paid less than minimum wage, which was this recent quorum report showed. And you ask, how can they get paid less than minimum wage on average? It's because so many are apprentices or younger workers who get paid very low salaries. So very few are even getting paid what you'd consider a living wage, much less a professional salary, which I, I would consider sim similar to a teacher or a nurse or someone like that. And there's no good reason for it, obviously. When you look at it uh, practically, an earlier's 
practitioner, you know, is doing an incredibly difficult job, certainly on par with any any other teacher, any other educator. So there's a real question why they're getting paid less. Part of it is because in the nursery world, there's just so many overheads and costs associated with the nursery. And there's so little government support that parents, you know, can only afford so much for earlier's care. And in England, it's one of the most expensive countries in the OECD as a percentage of income for earlier's care. So it's really difficult for nurseries to pay practitioners a, a professional salary just because, you know, they have to um, pay for so many other things and there's so little money in the system. There's something genuinely batshit about the fact that we are paying people to whom we entrust very young children who have a lot of different needs and which neuroscience has proven are the most important years in a child's life. We're paying them below the minimum wage. I mean, that just seems kind of outrageous. Yeah, it's totally outrageous. And it doesn't work. And, you know, maybe in the past, you could find people who would do those jobs for next to nothing. But the reason so many nurseries are closing and why so many parents and so many of your listeners who are desperate for good childcare can't find it is because, you know, now people can earn more money working for an Amazon warehouse or Tesco checkout or doing basically anything other than working in a nursery. And there's lots of underlying causes. I mean, the government invests less than half as much per child for preschool than they do for primary school kids, which, you know, there's no logical reason for that. You know, I think there must be a historic reason that in the past communities believed this was basically mother's jobs to just stay with the kid until they were four and give them full-time care and make sure that they were ready for school. That's obviously a 1950s view of the world that hasn't been like that for 75 years or so. But yet the government funding hasn't caught up and, and society hasn't caught up. Yeah, perhaps the same reason that many primary schools still email the mother for every single thing that you need in the school. But let's not get too far off track. <laughs> let's talk about, I just want to dig a little bit more into this supply issue. Just define for the listener what a child minder is, because that's quite a British term. And what's been happening with the child minding market in the past few years? Yeah. So in England, there's basically four different ways you can have a child taken care of. There's the informal sector, which is mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or aunt or uncle staying home. There's uh, nannies, which are the very expensive sort of Mary Poppins idea of having someone come to your house and take care of the child, which isn't scalable. And then the two more scalable options are nurseries and childminders. And nurseries are more going to a, a venue where there's a number of children there. It's more of an institution. And obviously, it's often owned by a larger institution. And then childminding are certified individuals who run what's very similar to a nursery, but in their own home, usually with anywhere from like three children. Sometimes they have an assistant, so it could be six to nine, maybe 10 children at most in, the, in their home. They still follow in England the early years foundation stage framework, which is the same curriculum framework that a nursery would follow for, for under fives. And they're eligible for all the different government payment schemes that a nursery is eligible for. So in many ways, the way to look at it is it's basically someone opening a, a very small nursery in their home for just a few children. And the advantages for the practitioner is they get to keep almost all the money because they have very little overhead. So, you know, with three children, you can earn a professional salary. Um, the advantage for the parents is it's usually less expensive than nurseries. However, before we came into it, before Tiny, it didn't feel very professional often or, you know, payment was complicated. You didn't know what the child was doing each day. It, it didn't feel often as organized as a nursery, I think, to many parents. But the advantage for children is there's been lots of evidence that small settings like that are much better for childhood development. And if you get child minors who are following earlier's foundation stage framework and have gone through lots of safeguarding background checks, which, which all of ours do and everything, then you have a really good setting and the child gets 
it's a very small, almost like family-like environment where the other children are almost like siblings and child uh, minder is almost like a parent type figure following a, a framework. And it's a very good environment for under fives. Let me push back on that for one second, though, because you also have a sort of key, and this will sound like a very gender phrase, but this is the way it's used, key man risk problem, which is, yes, on the one hand, it can be very intimate and wonderful if that child minder is wonderful. If that child minder is sick, there's a problem. You know, you're sort of hoping that that person's available if they have their own children and those children are sick, that's a problem. And, you know, what if that person's having a really bad day or their mother gets sick. Like it also feels riskier in some ways as a parent. This is how, you know, me as a parent is thinking. Reflect on that. Yeah, it does feel risky. And I mean, that's one of the things we're trying to solve for at Tiny. So what we've built is we're a child minding agency. So our child minders are members of this group, Tiny. We provide all the support. It has a real app-based digital product that does everything from payment and contracts, makes that really easy. The parent um, can see what the child's up to every day. The child minder, you know, follows a, a curriculum where they have lots of options and independence on how they do it. We have like really high standards, like lots of quality assurance visits and things. And also we have something where if the child minder is ill, other tiny child minders can take care of that child that day. So there's a bit of redundancy in the, in the system there for the parents and for the children. And how has that market been affected in the past couple of years? Is it growing? Is it shrinking? What is the state of the child minding market? So the state of the child minding market is really bad. Um, so the numbers have been shrinking. There were about 100,000 child minders 20 years ago. There were about 50,000 right before maybe 2017 or so, I think. And now there's about 29,000 post-COVID. So it's dropped, I know, by about 20% uh, just during you know the two years of COVID. It's been, been a lot of uh, carnage. We're, our numbers have increased. So I think one of the reasons child minor numbers have dropped is because no one's there supporting them. In my mind, this is a great job. If you like working with small kids, which lots of people love doing, it's a great job. Most child minors, our child minors are earning on average over 30,000 pounds a year working 40-hour weeks, which is similar to a teacher. And you work from home, basically. So it's a great job. So you'd wonder why are numbers dropping? And I think it's because no one's there really supporting child minders. You know, it's running a small business at your home, which can be really difficult. Many child minders are very good with children, but not very experienced on running small businesses. And that's not their skill set. And it's kind of difficult to become a child minder. It's just complicated and bureaucratic. And if you don't have any help with it, it can seem overwhelming. You said they're making 30000 Is that the same as the below minimum wage? So child minors earn more than nursery workers. So nursery worker would be making about half that. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And it's because, I mean, doing the math, you know, let's say you have three children, each one, you know, you're earning 650 or seven pounds an hour, something, something around there. So, you know, let's say a child minor is earning about 20 pounds an hour, which is, you know, pretty professional salary as opposed to a, a nursery worker would be earning eight or nine pounds an hour. You say that child minders that come through Tiny can make a lot more money. So take us through the math there. So an average child minder takes care of three children at a time. You're allowed to take care of more children after school or if you have an assistance or different things. But let's say let's say you just take care of three children. Our child minders are earning about six fifty an hour. So if you quickly do the maths, six fifty times three, that's let's say nineteen pounds fifty an hour. And if you're working forty hours a week or so, that's seven hundred and eighty pounds a week. If you work 48 weeks a year, let's say you take four weeks holiday, that's 37,000 pounds. So just put it that way. And then for fees and costs and everything, we take 10%, but that covers everything. That covers insurance, that covers just about everything you need. So let's say you keep 90% of that. Unlike a nursery, that would be 33,696 pounds. So I mean, that would be basically if you're just taking your three children 40 hours a week. 
And the difference between a nursery is you get to keep 90% of the money as opposed to going towards management and buildings and, you know, all the costs associated with the nursery. And tell me some of the other things I get. If I'm a childminder and I'm coming to Tiny, what else am I getting? Is it the sort of contracts, legal, safeguarding, which is significant, but is that is that the sort of full package? I mean, that's a lot of it. You know, there's the insurance. We have an early years foundation stage activity tracker. So we push out activities for them to do to make it very easy to follow the framework. So they, they pick things they would do each day based on the different categories of EYFS. And then it tracks what they're doing. So they get a very easy report out to parents each week. All the communications to parents and everything is included. Continuous professional development. So all of our child minders need to do a certain number of hours of CPD every month and every year. And we do lots of webinars, in-person training, lots of things through the app. And they keep track of all their CPD on the app. Uh, They do social events. So the child minors are in groups where we try to get them to meet every week with their kids because child mining can feel a very lonely profession. So the idea is, you know, once a week, all the child minors in a small area will uh, meet with their children at a park or something like that. And, and that's another thing that, that we help organize. We do like monthly book clubs, like lots of activities. And, th- and the whole idea is to create a really exciting community. Whatever questions they have, we, we can answer. We have tons of advice on, you know, if you have a special educational need child, how you can provide support for that. So basically anything that the child minor needs, we, we should be able to provide. And what kind of feedback are you getting? What are people engaging with? What is most useful to them? I mean, the push notifications and the curriculum support, are you doing that in response to child minders saying they want that? Or is that coming from a different place? Our whole product has been customer-led. You know, we've been customer-led from the beginning. And what we've tried to figure out is what our child minders desperate for. Why are the numbers dropping? Because they shouldn't be. Because this is a great job. And what would make a child minder happy and stay? And early on, when we talked to child minders who were leaving the profession or unhappy child minders, the things they said they were missing were definitely payment and contracts was something child minders hate. First of all, in England, people hate talking to other people about money, you know, more than in America. And if you can imagine a child minder talking to a parent who they sort of develop a friendly relationship. Like if there's a few parents, it's almost becomes like a familial you know, family type relationship, you know, asking about payment or asking about raising their fees or things like that are often very, very difficult conversation for child minders. And then dealing with all the contracts, uh, we do the taxes for them too. So dealing with their taxes, expenses, you know, all the contracts can get very complicated with parents. Like those are sort of things child minders hate. The second thing we often heard was child minders feel very lonely. And being alone in a, in a house with with some kids can can feel very um, lonely. So we really put the community front and center, and you know these these regular events is something that's really common. And then there was something around like quality assurance. Child minors don't usually enjoy getting visits by Ofsted, who's the regulator in England. And we have a relationship with government where Ofsted regulates us, and then we regulate the childminder. So rather than Ofsted come every three to five years and do like a really scary inspection, which they would do normally, we come at least once a year, but it's much more of like a critical friend approach where because we have all this data through the app, we know what they've been up to the last year. We'll send them advice lots of times beforehand. We'll meet with them. It's much more of a you know developmental support as opposed to an inspection. And I think that's something you know, they also really like. It sounds like the difference between summative and formative assessment <laughs> in a way, right? All the data that you're collecting allows you to see this much richer portrait of the child minder him or herself, as well as the kids and everything. So that sounds exciting. But I covered Wall Street for almost 20 years. And Wall Street always talked about wanting to be self-regulated and trust us. We'll always do what's in the best interest of our customers. And (laughs) and by the way, they just literally never did. And so I'm not saying that you are Wall Street, that you have the same ethos or ethics as that. But there is something fundamentally weird about 
you're inspecting the people who are paying you to be part of your network. Like that seems like a blatant conflict of interest. How does that work? Yeah, no, I would agree. Um, so I, I should also say, and I, I support this, Ofsted inspect us every year or every two years. So, and I think this is absolutely right. So Ofsted, the regulator, they just came in a few months ago and their inspection of us is on our website. And it was quite intense. It was three or four days. They spoke to 10% of our child minders. I think they do that every inspection. They looked at all of our paperwork. They did a few, you know, like I guess dipstick tests where they just went and looked at a child minor and saw if what they thought was the same as what we thought. And I think Ofsted in the end should be the backup. I mean, you know, people have different views of Ofsted. I personally view Ofsted overall as, as a positive thing in the English education system as a regulator. And um, I think that's what they do well. I think what they do well is regulate large organizations like us or, you know, big schools, make sure everyone's following the right procedures and policies. I think what they do badly is every few years just randomly go into a little house where there's, you know, maybe a woman in her 50s with three kids and, you know, spend a few hours trying to figure out if this person's a good child monitor. I think that's not like their strength. And it usually uh, petrifies the person who, you know, sees these people as almost more of a police force than a supportive force, I would say. So I, th I think it fits with Ofsted's strengths also to regulate us rather than regulate individual ch child minders. How do you do quality assurance on your child minders? So you're regulating them. How do I, as a parent, know that my child is actually properly safe with the people who are in your network? I mean, all of our child minders are much higher regulated than someone who's just with Ofsted, who just gets visits every few years. So, I mean, we have very high standards when people join. It takes a few months. Tons of background checks on them. We do background checks on everyone in their family, everyone who's going to be in that house. We do, you know, there's a medical check proof that they have done first aid, safeguarding, earlier foundation stage knowledge. There's a lot of different checks we do. And then once they join, we basically know what they're doing every week because we see the reports that they send the parents. So we know they're following the early years foundation stage curriculum or framework. We get feedback from the parents. So every week we're asking the parents for a bit of feedback. We know how many kids they have at any given time. Um, through the trackers and things. So we get tons of data. We know if they're up to date on their continuous professional development or if they've decided not to do any CPD the last few months, and which would be you know something we'd want to know. We know if they've been part of community events or if they've just detached from the community. We've had a number of instances where we've just done sort of surprise visits and which we're allowed to do, you know, if we see something that concerns us. But at the very minimum, we do one a year quality assurance visit. That's a surprise like QA visit. And we take all that data as part of that visit. But I mean, more and more as we scale and grow, the idea is to use all this data to get a much richer idea of which child minors need additional support and which ones we should be visiting. And for instance, like Airbnb, I know does something similar where they ask questions of their customers and they ask different questions each week to try to get a picture of what's going on. And that's what we want to do. And have you had to kick people out? I mean, do you get to a point where you're like, you got to go? Yeah, we've had, I'd say, four or five now in the last year. And give us a sense of the scale of this right now. How many do you have in your network? We have about a little over 400 uh, who are registered, licensed. And then we have about another eight or 900 who are in the midst of their training. That feels like pretty rapid growth. What is fueling that, do you think? Yeah, we just started like two years ago. We have really happy customers. So what's been good is more and more we've gotten some customers talking to others. And that's sort of what they call organic growth, where people are referring each other. And then, you know, we've been marketing ourselves in different places to let people know about Tiny. It does feel like we have something that people are really happy about. We have a very happy customer base. We've had very few people leave, like very low churn, net promoter score, you know, is very high. 
I'd say most of our customers are pretty happy with it. And it gets to the heart of it that actually child mining is a good job. I think there's no reasons the numbers should have been dropping over the last 20 years. It's it's actually at its core something that a lot of people want to do and actually pays fine and it's you know something you do from home. It's just you got to get rid of all the messiness around it, which which we're trying to do. That you know to get registered, it gets complicated or again the loneliness or the all all the stuff that just isn't as much fun. If you can get rid of that, it actually at its core, it's a great role. And how did you personally come to childcare as an industry to crack? I mean, how did you get here? So 20 years ago, I started a charity called Teach First and co-founded Teach for All, which is a global network around Teach First. And I spent 15 years leading Teach First and doing lots of work at Teach for All. And that was all about the war for talent. Before that, I was a management consultant. I worked for businesses on the war for talent. And Teach First and Teach for All are all about getting additional excellent talent into schools and low-income communities that need it most and building a leadership movement around that. And similarly to Tiny, I, I thought when I started teachers, I thought, you know, actually teaching in a really challenging low-income school ticks a lot of the boxes that top graduates are looking for, you know, and it just it didn't make sense that not enough people were doing that. So it just had to be sort of branded a bit differently, I felt, and, and looked at a bit differently. And when I left Teach First, my thought was, okay, the other area of the education system that just seems really... Um, I don't use the word broken, but I think it is broken because, you know, there's just not enough supply is early years. And as a parent, I know how much we struggle to find good care for our children. I visited hundreds of schools in disadvantaged areas across England, and so many children started school, you know, at five years old, so far behind other kids because they didn't have a good early years experience. And it just felt to me, you know, and everything you know about brain development, everything, this is the area that much more focus should be put on and much more attention. But no one was really prioritizing it. And I spent about maybe six or nine months kind of looking at the sector and thinking, you know, just as I said earlier in the podcast, okay, where's the area that can make the biggest impact? And I really struggled with nurseries because I just thought the problem with with earlier is, is the ratios are so small. There's just a few kids per adult. You know, how do you ensure there's enough money to pay these adults a professional salary? So the only way to do it is most of the money needs to go to the practitioner. You can't have a lot of other costs involved, you know, unless the government is suddenly going to throw in tons of money, which just isn't going to happen in England. So I really struggled to figure out how you could build nurseries that could scale and work for children in disadvantaged areas. But I got really excited about child money because I thought this is an area that could scale where, you know, if the practitioner keeps most of the money, you don't have to actually pay a ton. Like, you know, you could pay six to seven pounds an hour, like I was saying, which is obviously a lot for a lot of parents, but certainly if it's supported by government, that's an affordable amount. And yet the practitioner can earn a professional salary and it works for everyone because it's almost like Airbnb or something like, you know, you're using the house twice, you're using a lot of things twice, basically. Um, so I got excited about child minding. It felt like a very unsexy area of the education landscape that was broken and that not enough people were focused on fixing. There's certainly other people out there focused on fixing it. But it just felt like an exciting area to put some attention into. And you started the business in 2019 and then COVID hit. And obviously, it would be catastrophic for a business that was trying to support people in a home. So what did you do? Yeah, it was a nightmare. I didn't think it would last as long as it did. I don't know if other people were smarter than me. Our first child miner started in December 2019. And then everything went into lockdown, I think, in February 2020. And we had to shut most of our nurseries. Most of those people had to close their businesses and close their child minding. So we had about 12 months or so where 
we weren't really able to grow. We did spend a lot of time building the product and the tech, but yeah, it was, you know, it was difficult, I'd say. Since COVID, the last two years or so, we've been growing really well and it's been really exciting, but, but that certainly was a, a valley of death for the company and not, not a great time to launch. It was a pretty unique period and I'm curious, you said you doubled down on the tech. Were there other things you did in terms of researching the industry or just other avenues you pursued when you were suddenly thinking, okay, how do we kind of bide our time until this thing passes? Yeah, I mean, we we did have a community there. So what was good is we did use the community in different ways and we tried to support them and help them and, you know, have get advice from them. But, you know, what, what was difficult that year, and in retrospect, we made some mistakes, was, you know, lockdown would start and stop in England like three or four times. And every time lockdown was ending, I remember it like that May or something of 2020, we thought, great, you know, lockdown's over, let's go full force. And we'd start to get a bunch of people applying. And then three months later, there'd be another lockdown. So in retrospect, we should have just waited 18 months and not grown until COVID ran its course. But we don't know that at the time. Where was your funding before that? And where is it now? How much have you raised? Yeah. So unlike Teach First is a charity, we're a VC backed um, business. We are a, a B Corp. I think we're a non-official B Corp yet, but we're a, a pending B Corp, which means we're, you know, I certainly see us as also in addition to a profit making business, a social um, focused business. We have raised now a total of about nine million pounds. And I think right around COVID, we had raised four or five million at that point. So we raised about another four million since. And do you get the sense that COVID helps the cause of early years? It's not been good for early years in that the nurseries have shut, child mining has shut since COVID, partly because, you know, the great resignation. I think people find other jobs now that they can earn more money. I think, you know, they took a break and then they're like, wait a minute, what am I doing earning seven pounds an hour taking care of all these children when I could earn 10 pounds an hour just, you know, doing something much easier? I think there's a burning platform now. I think the sector is in a really difficult place right now and there has to be changes. I feel like, you know, it's an exciting time for us because I think we are one of the few solutions. We're one of the few areas of the sector that has grown since COVID. You know, if you look at the rest of early years, it's difficult to find other areas of early years that's done well in the last two years. I think it's been a very difficult time. At the same time in the U.S., the issue of childcare got a massive boost from COVID in the sense that what was required of caring for children, what happens to the employment landscape, something you mentioned earlier. It was almost as if you could see all these like old white stodgy dudes being like, oh, someone needs to take care of the kids. In England, have you had the issue elevation or did that not happen? No, I think the issue has been elevated. So I don't know how much it is just policymakers suddenly realizing these little children need someone to care for them. You know, maybe maybe the penny dropped, which is great. Sorry, that or was a very it... cynical response. <laughs> that was my, my very cynical response. Give me, uh, a, give me just... a more thoughtful one. Yeah. I mean, part of it I do think is the supply shortage, is that the supply has dropped also. But there's no question, you know, childcare, early years, you know, there's a new minister every nine months to 12 months. None of them seem to really want to rock the boat or do anything. The last two years, policymakers have seemed much more into this. And, you know, even Boris Johnson and now Liz Truss as two prime ministers have mentioned childcare in early years and have made fixing this as one of their priorities. So it's certainly not a policy area that's been raised to, you know, 10 Downing Street levels up until now. So it does feel like it's a much more prioritized area. And there's an inherent tension in trying to scale something so small, right? I mean, it's in some ways you could say that's the opportunity and I can see that. But Wonder School in the U.S. just raised $20 million from Goldman Sachs. It seems as if a big part of their shift is selling to government. So they've almost moved B to G, so to speak. 
And I wonder if you are worried that you might have to do something similar, i.e. the sort of childminder by childminder um, approach is going to get too arduous. Yeah, maybe. I mean, obviously, there's less governments to sell to in England than in America. I mean, what's interesting, it's a different policy landscape in England in that you have this policy of childminding agencies where we can sell to childminders and almost create this community much easier than a wonder school can in America because we register them, we license them, we regulate them. We have a legal place in the English market, which I don't think exists in America. You know, I always would laugh at my Teach for America counterparts, you know, when I was working at Teach First, that every policymaker I ever wanted to talk to all, you know, had offices within one square mile. That was like 10 minutes from my office. While, you know, my counterpart in America would have to fly on planes all over the country to meet all these different policymakers in each state or each locality or, or whatever. So in some ways, even though in America is obviously a much bigger market, England is, is a huge unitary market. You know, it's like I said, Scotland and Wales are different, but England has one policy environment. There's a really big economy, lots of parents, lots of children, all within one policy environment, which is different from America. Let's talk a little bit about policy because, you know, you've mentioned that the government doesn't do enough here. There's percolating interest. You know, how far that goes is interesting. I mean, as an American, when I moved here and I had two and three-year-olds and the government was helping me pay for my childcare through subsidies, I thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing. There's so much support for families. Is it not enough? Do we need to do more? What do we need to do? I mean, it's definitely not enough in that English parents pay more as a percentage of their income for childcare than I think any other country in the OECD. I, I believe that includes America, but I'd want to double check. But I, I think it's the highest in the OECD. And it's really problematic. And I think what usually happens is, you know, because it's the patriarchy or whatever we're going to say, it's usually the moms who don't go back to work, you know, and there's huge productivity problems. And one of the problems England has compared to many other European countries, many other developed countries, is our productivity hasn't been growing uh, as quickly as many other countries in the world. And I think this is, you know, a great explanation, one of the many explanations for why that's the case, why productivity in England is not as high as it needs to be compared to other countries. So I think the government does need to do more. Like I said, they spend less than half per child for a three-year-old than they do for a five-year-old. And, you know, there's no logical reason for that, why you would spend twice as much for a five-year-old who's in school as opposed to a three-year-old, you know, it's, it's all historic. So I think the problem we have today is the government is broke in England and getting broker. And so there's not going to be probably additional funding going in, even though it's important, which is why I think they need to think of different ways to change regulation and policy and, and basically make it easier for people to, you know, start these businesses in their homes in ways that are affordable. What would be some specific regulation changes you'd like to see that would make it easier for people to start these businesses in their homes? So one is we've often come across the fact that you need planning permission. And what is absurd is a lot of our child minors live in council estates, so public housing. And so they need permission from their local authority to child mine in that apartment. And many won't give it because they say you can't run a business from there. In the meantime, they get letters from all of their neighbors who like live in that apartment building who are saying we're desperate for affordable childcare, which these people would provide. I mean, it's one of these absolutely catch-22 ridiculous things. So we've talked to the government about changing that and saying you don't need planning permission to childmine from your house. That would be just one straightforward thing. You know, I, I would say currently childminers, many of them go through Ofsted rather than an agency like us. 
And if they go through Ofsted, we see they leave pretty quickly and everything. And the government subsidize Ofsted a lot. So my point would be rather than subsidize Ofsted to inspect every single child minder, which is not something they're good at, have Ofsted inspect the agencies like us, which they are good at, and use that additional money to support child minors or to support agencies in different ways. You know, without growing the money, I think that it's using the money differently. There's a few other like policy things that are just sort of infuriating. All of our child minors need to get a, a medical checkup and, and that's something that takes time and it's expensive. They're not allowed to use like other buildings outside their house to child mind and there's no real good reason for that why they can't use, you know, a church hall or something like that to child mind. So I think there's, you know, just a number of regulatory things that don't get to safeguarding because I, I would definitely think you want a high degree of safeguarding. and I don't think you want to get rid of any safeguarding regulations, but I think, um, you know, there's other regulations there that probably don't help. If you are childminding in a church hall, isn't that a nursery? Well, it depends. I mean, when you're a childminder, you'd be taking care of three or four children on your own and you follow certain childminding regulations, but currently you have to do it from your home. I mean, like you can't even do it from someone else's home. So we have some childminders who, you know, would say, oh, you know, I will child mine, but I'm going to do it from my friend's home across the street, basically. You're not allowed to do that, as an example. Oh, that's crazy. So if I wanted to say I found a wonderful babysitter, and then I had three families on my street who wanted to join in, and I said to the child minder, come child mind at my house, we can't do that? Not as a child minder. I mean, she could do it as a babysitter, but babysitting, you know, that means you couldn't use any government payment schemes to pay her. She wouldn't have to follow the earliest curriculum. There wouldn't be any safeguarding checks or anything like that. How do you feel about having the early years framework for child minders? You could clearly make two arguments. One is it's great there is a curriculum and that it's obviously a lot of thought went into it. It's actually internationally touted as a really great framework. On the other hand, those years, I think you want to be sort of responsive and organic and natural. And, you know, I I sometimes sort of chafe at the idea of like, oh, my God, there's even a framework for like how we play with the two-year-olds. I mean, I'm a big fan of EYFS. So I'm definitely in the first camp rather than the second camp. I think when you look at it, you know, people often have this view is, oh, what is it? Is it just sitting children at a desk learning, you know, their multiplication tables or things like that, which it isn't. You know, EYFS is a great framework. It's about play. You know, in the best way I've seen it used, it's child-led, but it's, you know, really helping them learn through their play. A lot of it is things parents might do instinctively, or at least, you know, parents who give a lot of thought to how they want their child to develop probably does instinctively. But I think it's something every child should have access to, because I think children who don't have access to that EYFS framework are definitely far behind when they start school. And, you know, it is much more around playing with others. It's much more about understanding the world around you, you know, about socialization, about things like that, as opposed to, you know, I often think people think, again, it's doing calculus on a desk or something like that, which it's not. It's much, I think it is relevant for, you know, a three or four-year-old as opposed to an older kid. You made a comment to me when we were first discussing Tiny, that early years is the last thing anyone cares about. We were talking about policy. And I know we've touched on this a little bit, but I just want to kind of end on a reflection on why that is. Well, I could say that it's inherent sexism and the patriarchy and the fact that, you know, for thousands of years, this was seen as something that mom had to deal with and, you know, no one else had to worry about. You know, I'm sure it comes at some stage from that history. I think probably until the last 20 years, a lot of people just assumed or thought that, you know, small children were just sort of 
happily playing and there was nothing else going on when they were playing. They were sort of, you know, it's what small children did and wasting their time and then they start school and then they start learning. Or, you know, that's only when the brain starts development as they get older. And, you know, all babies basically do the same thing. I think we've learned so much in the last 20 years around brain development. I mean, anyone who knows anything about brain development around educational development would know how ridiculous the statements I just made are that obviously playing is a form of education and learning. And, you know, it, it's, it's much more complicated than it appears to adults. And brain development, so much happens from zero to five that, you know, basically if you miss that opportunity, children start at an amazing disadvantage. And, you know, if you were to do it logically, you would probably invest more in a, a three-year-old than you would in a 13-year-old. But, you know, we have our priorities upside down because I think for a long time, we just didn't understand how small children were learning. And, and like I said, I think there is an inherent sexism in, in why earlier is seen as less important or as less prioritized than other sections of education. Last question. How does the cost of living crisis, which is absolutely besetting this country, inflation at 10%, as you've pointed out, productivity is low, recession looming. How does that fit into this scenario? If I were you, I could feel sort of dread and despair, or I could say this is a moment where we could have a lot of opportunity. So take me through how you feel the economy is going to affect your business and its prospects. Yeah, I mean, it is a really difficult time. And I think obviously a lot of people are going to have a very difficult next few years. And it's 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 very scary, um, I think, for anyone in, in England and, and I guess many other countries going through it. I mean, one thing is, um, you know, childcare is something that people need to prioritize in difficult economic times and more positive economic times. I often think, all these companies that started like grocery delivery services a year ago where in London where you could walk five minutes to a grocery store anywhere, I was I never understood it, you know, and it feels like those things are really not necessary when when you're really counting your pennies. But um but earlier care is necessary, you know, for people to go to work. And it's just a backbone for society. I think if the government is really serious about increasing productivity and ensuring, you know, that we can get out of an upcoming recession, and the way you do that is by ensuring all of society is more productive and you have to focus on childcare and earlier's care you know, for this generation and for the next generation. And even if policymakers don't look far enough ahead 20 years to worry about the next generation being productive because they had a good earlier experience, they should definitely um, worry about, you know, ensuring that parents can go back to work and that parents can focus on their daily lives, not worrying about whether their children have access to great earlier's care. So I think that's going to be really important in, in a you know, difficult economic environment. All right. Final question. What is your favorite book about learning? You know, I've read a lot of education books and I know everyone at Teach First like loved Doug Lamov and there's so many great books. The one I'm going to go for, though, for me personally, is Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, I don't know if that's a book about learning. I love that book. And what is your favorite book not about learning? I'd say another one of my favorite books, which is uh, tangentially about learning, is Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro. What are you binge watching? Um, so I just uh, finished Better Call Saul, which is fantastic. Uh, I would highly recommend as a uh, even better than Breaking Bad. Brett, thank you so much for joining us and good luck with the very important work you are trying to do to elevate early years. Thank you. I spent two years at Quartz, knee deep in the neuroscience of early childhood, prenatal to age five. We know these years are the most important period of brain development. It is in these years that we build the foundations of learning, of loving, and of being. And yet we consistently underfund the sector and pay its practitioners peanuts. It short-sighted and short-changes the smallest and most vulnerable in society. 
As Brett points out a few times, children who don't have a positive early years experience often turn up to school behind, a deficit that more often than not only compounds as the years go on. I applaud Brett's work, but we're worried that without more government support and more sustained attention to the sector, the trend of losing childminders will only continue. Brett talked about the productivity issues involved here. Women can't work when they have to be home caring for children, but it's more than that. Leaving a baby for the first time is easily one of the hardest things parents have to do. These babies can't talk. They can't tell you how great or shit their day was. They deserve caretakers who are well-paid, who are professionally supported, and who are part of a community and who themselves can continue learning. It's the oxygen mask analogy. They can't take care of our kids if they can't even support themselves. With a cost of living crisis, a looming recession, not to mention that long-standing productivity crisis, providing women high quality care so they can do the work they need to should be a national priority. What a shame that it's not. Thanks for listening. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.